So anyways, hey, listen, so before there was a Burt Rutan designing oddball airplanes, there was some German guy who, uh, uh, whose name I actually don't know here. What was his name? <laughs> uh, let's see now. It's called the, uh, it's called the, the Blom and Voss BV-141. Did you guys see this airplane? Yeah. This is, this is, uh, this is unusual. This is, so let me just describe it here. Uh, it's a, well, a start with a normal low-wing monoplane uh, with a single engine up on the nose, uh, and then make it so that the main fuselage is slightly offset to the left, and then put another sort of big pod on the right wing and make that the cockpit, all right, kind of separate from the fuselage. Then back on the empennage. This is, this is Burt Rutan. No, no, this is, this is Burt Rutan meet Indiana Jones. Uh, yeah. Oh, is that what we've seen this airplane? It does kind of remind one of the boomerang. Yeah. It's, so, it's not, but it's it's a different airplane. It's well, not, but it yeah, it, yeah. it has that same kind of asymmetry. Yeah. And just to finish my description here, so the empennage, there's only one um, elevator portion on the left, uh, and then there's what looks like a relatively small rudder uh, component. Um, but it does have two sides. But it, yeah, but it does have two sides. Okay. Anyways. What, uh, what has two sides? The rudder. The rudder. <laughs> it's well, it's, it's right David side. being cute. Don't worry about it. Maybe that's the title, David being cute. Um, you, is that what you call that? Uh, yeah. I would call it that. No. Okay. Anyways, uh, Blom and Voss BV-141. Kind of kind of interesting airplane. Actually flew. There's uh, mm -hmm. So we got this from a couple of listeners. Let's see now. Uh, in the forums. Uh, where was I here? Let's see. In the forums, come on, screen, here it comes. Uh, listener Sven, who we've heard from before, uh, posted a, a couple of uh, links to information about this. Uh, oh, he actually made the Burt Rutan joke, too. I didn't catch this. Uh, he said maybe Burt Rutan had German roots. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't see that either. Yeah. But uh, there's um, actually a YouTube video of, uh, of uh, vintage footage from test flights way back when. And, yeah, uh, this, is, this is a perfect example of just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Okay. Well, I don't know. Did it, so I guess that's my first question. Is there some reason beyond Jeb's description just now of why you try this? Is, what's the, what's the uh, aerodynamic or whatever virtue of this airplane? Well, I think it's it, it, it really is geared to right-handed pilots, myself. And as a southpaw, I find that highly objectionable. I'm sure that's I why the Germans were experimenting with it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe they, wanted to, uh, maybe they wanted their pilots to only go deaf in one ear instead of both. Uh, <laughs> maybe, they were, maybe they were short an engine or two. Who knows? The, the quick answer, Jack, is I think that, that uh, evolution, if you will, has demonstrated that there are optimal configurations for certain types of aircraft performing certain missions. Uh -huh. This ain't one of them. Uh -huh. Well, now, according to the Wikipedia page that someone... So, uh, by the way, also listener, uh, listener Wired for Flight uh, also jumped in on the conversation in the forums and, and called our attention to a Wikipedia page for this aircraft. And I think it said something like uh, the reason they didn't build it was in part... Well, for, well, Jeb, to your point, I guess they, they, the Wikipedia page says because it was kind of just so non-standard. But right. they also said they couldn't get the engine that they wanted. And uh, so well, that's, a, that's, that's another question here. Is this powered? I, I presume it's powered by one engine. Yeah, it says one BMW. Yeah. Of course, there's only a single propeller. It could have been a tandem engine installation or something. But anyway, why have basically two fuselages, two sets of frontal area, powered by only one engine? Yeah, I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I can't don't understand. Help wonder if it didn't have some loading uh, benefits, perhaps, or at least perhaps. theoretically, that it might have some loading benefits. Uh, uh, Particularly, particularly if uh, if you're talking about a tactical situation where you got to get an off off and on someplace, you could land this, keep one engine running, and everybody can get in and out of the main cockpit without ever getting in, you know, encountering a spinning propeller. Yeah, uh, well, we saw we solved that in the '30s with a thing called a starter motor. <laughs> That's it. You're assuming you want to take time to shut it down. Well, there's. I understand. Oh, no, wait a minute. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. Um, so according to the Wikipedia article, it says, uh, while actually performing well, it was never ordered in full-scale production. Contributing factors to the decision were unavailability of the preferred engine and competition of another tactical reconnaissance aircraft, the Falk Wolf FW-189. Now, I'm asking, I invite you guys to click the link to look at the Falk Wolf, all right? And suddenly, suddenly, the blonde boss looks a little bit conventional. Uh, you looking okay. at this FW uh, one eighty nine here? Well, also look at the Arado AR one ninety eight. All right, where's that link here? Um, it's earlier, in, uh, but there's another Arado. I think it's a two thirty four. All right, the the Arado one ninety eight. Uh, did, you, did you send us a link or something? No, we're looking at links on the Wikipedia page. Ah, okay. Uh, but I'm not seeing a picture uh, on the Wikipedia page for the Arado 198. How about just the Arado page? Let's see here. No. Yeah, the, 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 the Arado page, if you scroll down yeah. from, from the 190 or whatever page. Yeah, there's a whole but bunch of them. Which one should I there's, click? There's, a, there's an Arado AR 234. 234. Uh-huh. Oh, and reconnaissance with optimal visual characteristics. I uh -huh. could see that. I didn't pick up on it, but I could see that. Uh -huh. You talking about the? Are you talking about the? Uh, are you talking the, about the Blom Voss, David, or the? Arado? Yeah, the Blom Voss. Oh, okay. Blom Voss. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the one eighty nine. Yeah, I could sort of see that. But now, what about this two thirty four, Jeb? What? 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 We an Arado uh, popped up, and and this Arado was actually in service. This is uh, if you click through the picture mm -hmm. uh, on the Wikipedia page. Uh, this is in the uh, Air and Space Museum in Washington. Mm -hmm. It was it was an operational German um, bomber uh, configured much like the uh, Me two sixty two, but with a larger. Um, nose and uh, plexiglass in the nose, mm -hmm. so you had a lot of visibility. Um, now this Arado and, appears to have jet engines. Go ahead. It has jet engines. It's basically the same engines as the two sixty two. Is looking at the nacelles. I haven't looked at the the, the model spec or anything like that. Um, You're talking about the Arado one ninety eight? No, no, two thirty four. Click through ah, down at the bottom. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's it. Well, but, but but that, that FW that one eighty nine is is awfully interesting too. Uh, you know, the next model FW, of course, went on to fame and fortune. In uh, what way? The FW one ninety. Okay. Went, it was a very is a, a a famous World War II aircraft. I'd love to get my hands on one. Let's pretend yeah, that I'm, let's pretend that I'm not familiar. Tell me about it. Uh big radial engine. Um. Kind of big, short, rock, big long kind, gear legs. Big, uh huh. Kind of kind of short uh, wings. Um, fuselage seating one person, uh, and not much of that. It was it was a equal to the P fifty one. 
and everything. We got May range. Oh, okay. I finally found a picture. Oh, yeah, well, that's a very, very traditional looking aircraft. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the FW one ninety. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. that that big round engine was uh, kind of distinctive on that airplane. Uh, on the one ninety. On the one ninety. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Uh, what was distinctive for it to about be it? as competitive with the fifty one as it was? Uh-huh. You know, the fifty one and it had a V twelve. Uh, much narrower frontal area and, and a whole lot of stuff that went with that. But uh, that 190 was a wicked bad airplane. Tough on yeah. the Allies. It was. Yeah. Now, going back to that original uh, Bloss, uh, oh, I've lost it here. Blom, what, um, the Blom Voss? Blom Voss. Uh, David, you were commenting something about visibility. What did you see? Yeah, that's what uh, one of the websites we were looking at here that – the design was to optimize visibility and use it as a recon aircraft. Okay. So you got all that glass area, uh, nothing out in front. See, but the, even that, some glass under the bottom. Yeah. Uh, by putting the engine off to one side, you actually open up the front of it like a multi-engine bomber. I see. Jeb, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. Um, there are other ways to skin that cat. Uh, one of them, of course, is the Partenavia, uh, I forget what it's called, um, um, the, the high wing piston twin, um, and, uh, other aircraft have, have been optimized for that too. Um, this is okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a solution to that problem, but there's other solutions to that problem that aren't as radical. And again, don't, don't force upon you two uh, flat plate drag areas. Back to one flat plate drag air. If you just did a conventional fuselage. Oh, and this puppy was fast too. Apparently, two hundred and forty-eight miles an hour. Not shabby on the on the horsepower. Yeah, yeah. Did you look? If you if you looked at the YouTube video, um, it's not very long. Uh, it, it did a maneuver that scared me. I thought it was about ready to crash. Um, he did this big climb wing over kind of thing, and it almost looked like he was going to dive back down at the ground, but he pulled it out just fine. It looked like you know, at least according to the video, it was a nicely flying airplane um, and they took away half the tailplane to clear the gunner's field of view oh, because there was okay. an aft mounted machine gun in that ah uh, that explains i was wondering why they only had had it had the uh, the elevator on one side well, compare this though to to some models of the heinkel 111 okay yeah yeah you know you got two engines you got three crew or something like that you've got a glass nose for observation. You've got bomb carrying capability. It's a conventional airplane. Um, it just needs two engines. Well, I mean, that could have been and, the and factor. It, and it did everything that this purports to do, um, perhaps better and, and, more, and more economically. I don't know. Yeah. But, again, the Heinkel 111 is is same mission, basically, as this. Yeah, well, I mean, and then I guess maybe that's the reason why the Heinkel 111 was embraced and used a lot, and this one wasn't. You know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Just think about it. Every seat was a window seat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, hey. so, and so it is in my airplane also. I know. Yeah, mean, right. That doesn't mean <laughs> having two fuselages makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I went flying over the weekend in an airplane that also every seat was a window seat on both the left and right side of the airplane. Yeah. Where, where'd you do? What'd you do? Tell well, me. We'll come back know. to that. First of all, let me say this. Welcome, folks, to episode <laughs> 275 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Get the frack out. 275? 275. Really? Uh-huh. Are you kidding me? Claire. 
background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really good noise. good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, right. this is the best seat in the house. That's right. We've got Skyriders now. We've got Skyriders We've got Skyriders now. Skyriders now. Does that say UCAP? I can't It's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> and you're on site, clear away. Turkey National Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. Hey, we're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday, ooh, wait a minute, no, Thursday, February uh, 23rd, uh, 2012, and uh, uh, I'm not certain about that, but I am certain that joining me here in the virtual hangar are my two good friends. Uh, joining us from Wichita, Kansas is Dave Higdon. Hi, Dave, how are you doing? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. I've been seeing a lot of uh, aviation friends at some unusual venues the last 24, 30 hours, and it's been a real treat. Temperatures yeah. in the 70 yesterday, went and sat in an outdoor bar for a while for Ooh. drinks after work, uh -huh. and, and today, uh, I, I may go back after the uh, podcast, uh, I, I just will put, in, put, put, put winter boots back on for it, so. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Yeah. And talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, is our good friend Jeb Burnside. How you doing, Jeb? I'm doing okay. Um, fairly productive day and uh, interesting week. Um, got an evening and another night day of this and get into the weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Yeah. Hi, what you been up to? You did some – well, okay. I, I, I shouldn't I, – I should let you decide to tell us this. And, I, and I'll cut this out if it's a problem. But okay. you did some flying this past week. Yeah, I did. It's, we can talk about that. Yeah? You know, yeah? We're not, we're not going to talk about – you know what I did between flights. Well, I, I you know, I honestly only care about the flying. Well, that's not totally true. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. I have only the vaguest notion of what you're talking about. All right, what I'm talking about. I care, about, about, I care about you too, Jack. Yeah, that's... I know. What I'm talking about is that you apparently cross paths with uh, Turbo. Oh yeah, literally. Um, yeah, I was, was that Turbo, Turbo Ed. He was Turbo Ed. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and I knew the airplane, and Jack and I have both ridden in the airplane with Turbo. And so I knew the airplane, and I knew I was going into his home plate, which is um, uh, Witham Field in Stewart, Florida. And I'm, you know, boring in uh, um, from the south, and I get cleared to land on something like, I don't know, runway 25 or something. And uh, I don't even know where he is. We both call in on frequency. I recognize the end number. I recognize the voice. And I just said the word, you know, turbo on the frequency. And he clicked his mic a couple of times and, and you know, whatever. And so I landed on 2-5, which is on the uh, east end of the airport, east end of the, from the ramp. And by the time I cleared the runway and rolled out on the taxiway, he was landing on 3-0. Mm -hmm. And ro rolled out in front of me and got to the parking area before me, and then I followed him in. Um, but we didn't get a chance to chat. Um, I, I was committed to do some other things. Uh, but we, he and I talked later uh, in the weekend. And, mm -hmm. uh, cool. Uh, it was, yeah, it was good. Cool. Um, I want, uh, there's something he posted on YouTube recently that I want to, maybe we'll get to it later on. I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that as a teaser. Uh, but before I forget, uh, from the UCAP Winter HQ on the evergreen slopes of Garrison Hill in Dover, New Hampshire, I'm Jack Hodgson. And uh, it's been uh, an eventful week for me, too. I, uh, I had a little aviation adventure that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put off for just a moment. We'll come back to it, though. But uh, other than that, it's, uh, it's starting to be spring-like here. Of all things, it's still February, and yet it's really becoming spring-like up here in uh, New England. 
uh, I posted on uh, Instagram uh, just this afternoon or yesterday, I guess, um, a picture I took at Lookout Point of some of the trees are actually starting to bud. They're actually leaves starting to blossom uh, on trees in February in New England, which is just unbelievable uh, you know it's, un- ter- it's starting to green up around here too it's it's still dry uh-huh. uh and we, but we were expecting a little bit of rain this weekend uh ponds down easily three feet mm-hmm. yeah all right let's get going here yeah aviation stuff we could conceivably call this uh, off-field land uh, all off-field landings nothing but off-field landings uh we've got like five off-field landings here let's just kind of jump through these quickly and see if any of them um jump out at us here the first one is one that we kind of hinted at last week. This is a uh, Cessna 152 that uh, it's actually, well, I guess it's, strictly speaking, it's an off-field landing. I don't know if they were trying to land off-field or not, um, but uh, this is the Cessna one. I'm trying. I'm I'm speaking slowly because I'm trying to open the link here while we're while I'm talking. This is uh, in, remember last week we were talking, we weren't sure if it was Mexico or Brazil, and we got confused with this and another one. And I, uh, I wasn't confused. You weren't confused. Dave and I were confused. So, uh, and what did we end up deciding? David, do you remember? Is this one? Uh, it was I in thought Fuka, we ended up it was deciding in, it was Brazil. No, we ended up deciding it was in Mexico. The 150. It said, it said so in the article we were reading from. It was a Mexican registered airplane. Well, no, no, no. Mex- that was the one Mexican we did airspace. talk about, right? We talked. Okay. We talked yeah, about that the. Was a different one. We talked about the the one where the propeller came off. That, right. was, Mexico. that was Mexico. Now, right. We got confused because we were also looking at the Cessna one fifty two uh, that got hung up in the wires, which is Brazil, I believe. Yeah, but I wasn't. Conf- I wasn't confusing the. T- yeah, I know. Okay. Anyways. Never, never mind. Never Anyway. We're now talking about a Brazilian 152 that now it's in Brazilian or it's in I guess that's Portuguese, right? So uh so we we don't know exactly what the situation was here, whether this aircraft was trying to land at a at a, a traditional airport or or whether they were coming down with an engine failure. But the upshot is it ended up hanging inverted from one of its main gear from some sort of big power line. It's hanging about, I don't know, I would estimate fifty feet off the ground and uh and it's just hanging there. And uh, another link that a listener posted in the forums uh, takes us to a, a, a Brazilian TV newscast where they have some some footage uh, of uh, probably from a helicopter circling. And uh, and this is just hanging there. It's just just kind of astounding to see it. Now the thing that gets me, I mean, it's kind of amazing that it can safely. No, I don't know if it was safe, but that it hung here for at least a while. What I can't imagine is how you do this. I can't figure out quite how you would get the airplane into this. So you suppose you wanted to do this. I don't know. You were special effect in a movie or something. How would you do this? This is a good trick, I'll tell you. Well, the first thing in my mind, if I was doing this for a movie or something, yeah, would be to make sure that there's no power to that freaking line. Yeah, that too, right? Huh? Let's see now. I'm going to. Yeah, uh, I'm not. That's odd. What's that? Well, I'm looking at this live leak video page. Yeah. That, uh, talking about this airplane uh, hit a high voltage tower and hung for a few hours. Uh, looks like it 
the, the, the one that we're talking about from the other web page looks exactly like it. I'm just trying to figure out what it is, what model 150 that is that can hold six people. Yeah, I know. That was good. The news story did make mention to the fact that the airplane can hold six people. Uh, let's see. Oh, now. look, there, there, there is. You, you could probably put two on each strut. Might have a hard time yeah, holding well, on. But that, I mean, we even talked about this last week, talking about, I think, um, East, Eastern European um, cra- uh, rescue authorities reported crash of a one, Cessna 152 in a cemetery. They were, you know, <laughs> t- had 200 bodies and were still digging. You know. um, <sighs> nevertheless. So, according to Google Think Translate, about it, Jack. Think about it. I'm sorry. I was trying to read this translation. <laughs> I confess I wasn't <laughs> listening very carefully. Anyways, so listen. I'm reading. Uh, I, so I copied the text out of the uh, Portuguese page and pasted it into Google Translate. This is what Google Translate says: uh, a model aircraft Cessna 152. And again, you got to forgive the translation weirdness here. Um, aircraft one Cessna 152 was caught on Tuesday in a high voltage network about 20 meters above the ground in rural Kelusido. I apologize for pronouncing that badly. Um, Two passengers were rescued unharmed, according to the fire department, uh, who attended the event. Uh, I wonder what happened to the other four. Yeah, I know. The passengers reported reported engine failure and tried to make a forced landing, but one of the wheels got stuck in the wire. The two men who were upside down were rescued by firefighters, uh, rappelling into a risky operation since the aircraft could fall. Um, so. And it happened to some guy near Lake Washington. Yeah, quite some time Seattle, ago. Outside Renton. Right, uh, right next to Boeing Field, right? This was like yeah. um, 98, 99, right. 2000 time. Yeah. Yeah. Same kind of yeah. thing. It was hung up on yeah. the, just the, almost exactly like this, hanging from yeah. the wires. And uh, I think Jim and I may have collaborated on on uh, something about that for AvWeb. That's how far back that was. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting. This high, uh, kind of brings up a, a conversation I had with a flight service station specialist recently, and he's given me notams for my destination. And he, one of them is like a tower, an unlit tower, one hundred and seven feet off the ground such and such uh, a radial and such and such a direction uh, a distance from the airport. And I said, yeah, I said something like, you know, if I have to worry about a hundred and some odd foot tower uh, two miles from the airport, I've got a whole different, I've got a whole <laughs> a bunch of other problems at that particular point in time. And he starts laughing. He says, yes, yeah. all it's going to do is cushion the fall. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. So the whole low flying and obstructions thing. So I don't know if that really qualifies as an off-field landing of the week because uh, as of the news story well, we're looking at, a landing? yeah, their, their landing has not happened yet. So, uh, but uh, uh, I, 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 you know, it's it, it, it's the highest arrestor wire he'll ever see. Yeah, I know, and and strictly speaking, they didn't walk away from it, so I don't think that qualifies either. But uh, they, uh, I think they qualify for the walk away part after they were lowered by you any, know, some kind of. Yeah, any uh, any any landing rig. you can rappel away from is uh, 
Uh, off your landing at number two uh, from the uh, the cap. This is also from the forums. Uh, thanks to listener uh, Wired for Flight uh, for calling us to our attention. A pilot runs out of fuel. Oh, see, now I want to talk about this, but I'll read the story first. Lands in Grant County Highway Ditch. A uh, pilot from Nebraska landed Friday near Highway 61 in rural Lancaster after he ran out of fuel, the sheriff's department reported. According to the sheriff's news release, Dennis Dangberg, 68, of Windside, Nebraska, was flying from Freeport, Illinois, back to Windside when he was forced to land the 1970 Beechcraft Baron about two miles from Lancaster Airport. Dangberg tried to put down on the road but ended up in a ditch alongside Highway 61 near O'Parrell Road. He was treated for minor injuries. The FAA is investigating. Ah, what was I, it in Tom Turner's column today? What's that? Tom was addressed this. This particular one got Tom's attention because this is a barren, kids. Right, right. This is a twin. Mm-hmm. And when you have both sides get quiet and a twin at relative, you know, at approximately the same moment. Uh, it's been something really, really go wrong with either fuel consumption or fuel planning. And so Tom decided to do a little investigative work. Okay, he, good. He I want to hear the CSB database. Yeah. And what he came up with looking, he only was able to look, there were so many records. He only looked at 2010 when, if I believe I got this right, 59 of these occurred. Really? That made it into the NTSB reports. 59, more than one a week. 59 fuel starvation forced landings. Yeah. From one aircraft model. No, No. from one year. Oh, from one One, year. Oh, oh, okay. One year, one a week. Yeah, across. Go ahead, Jeb. A, B, are we talking talking starvation or exhaustion? Well, yeah. Exhaustion. Exhaustion. I was trying to come up with a term that would encompass all of these. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exhaustion is is the big bugaboo, and you know it's not rocket science. And, and people ask me, and, and people unfamiliar with general aviation, especially, ask me, you know, well, isn't that really unsafe? And I'm like, look, uh, you stay out of bad weather, you always carry enough fuel, you pay attention to your maintenance, and uh, know your limitations. You're probably not going to bust your ass. Yeah, that's what I tell uh, them too. And yeah, and and one of the big things there is making sure you got enough gas yeah in end of discussion exactly and that's why and I, and in this particular case uh, the story doesn't give us enough information to know one way or the other but but i i would propose that anybody who does an off-field landing because they just didn't plan their fuel well and ran out of gas is disqualified i'm sorry <laughs> you just don't get to be off-field landing of the week if you were Foolish Jeb, and ran Jeb, out of gas. Jeb just yeah, mentioned. There, there, Jeb we, just mentioned. We, we have standards. Yeah, I know we have standards. They're, they're, David, they're low, but we have. Yeah, I'm sorry, David. Go ahead. I was going to say, Jeb just mentioned three of the smartest, most salient points that you can ever carry with you. Tattoo them on the palm of your hand. Right. The yeah. one that you don't use most of the time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it's just it's uncanny. Almost half of these that that Turner dug up. Uh, occurred within a few miles of the destination airport, a couple of miles of the destination airport, meaning that there was a little homesick angel, I'm going to stretch it out, I'm, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. Uh, a, a significant percentage of them happened with airplanes that were in a pattern of the airport that they were operating from. Yeah. It's like derangement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And wholly avoidable. 
I'm not talking about the carburetor screwing up a mixture jet and, and cutting off a fuel or a pump breaking or something like that, but having enough and having it available until you run out and then going, oh, wow, uh, I guess I, I will be landing now. Seat belts, shoulder yep. harnesses, yep. tray tables up, locked, and... What am I going to tell the insurance company? Exactly. So to pilot Dennis Dangberg, uh, uh, if this fuel uh, running out of gas, but quote unquote, no cigar. Yeah, well, no, I'm going to say if this was out of your control for some reason, then good job. You got it on the ground. Uh, if not, tisk tisk tisk. Yeah. So don't do that again. Don't do that again. Uh, let's see now. The next off-field landing of the week, uh, opening on my uh, yet another one from from uh, forums. Yeah, yet another one from Sven uh, calls attention to our attention to an article in the press to Demo- press democrat dot com. Uh, motorized. Ha- I'm reading this almost for the first time. I read it a while back. Motorized hang glider zaps Duncan Mills power. Jeb, this is your like. You do this routinely, right? You you read you you read about a possible crash. You immediately go into Google and see if the power went out in that area. Didn't you say that one time? No, I don't think I ever said that. I think you did. I think you said that that was one of your clues that something bigger happened. Um, well, anyways. maybe, maybe, but I, I mean, I don't routinely do that. Yeah, uh, a motorized hang glider that crashed into power lines over the Russian River left Duncan's Mills residence without electricity for about nine hours. The crash happened about 10 a.m. Sunday, just east of Duncan Mills Bridge near Cassini Ranch Campground. Campground. Uh, Straps from the hybrid machine became tangled in the lines as the pilot, a 33-year-old South Bay man, circled the area after taking off from Go... Now, this is not off-field landing. This no, is- man, this, this is the off-field landing of the week. <laughs> Why is that? Continue to read. Okay, the pilot didn't come in contact with the high-voltage power lines, but the glider did, and it pitched him into the... <laughs> so you're trying to tell me he was thrown out of his aircraft? He was, no, the he whole was thrown thing out, of, the out of the aircraft... Yeah, into the into the river, into the river, away, <laughs> away from the high voltage lines, and survived. And survived. The man's name was not immediately available. Yeah, he was uninjured, according to the yeah. article. <laughs> That's uh, the off-field landing of the week. Uh, the the, the it, fire officials you know, helped retrieve the craft from waist deep water. The pilot was not cited for any violations. I don't know. Anyways, all right. So good thing he so, didn't have a fishing pole with him. Yeah, really. It sounds like the mayor or somebody, you know, was doing this. But yeah, maybe uh, that's what it was. Maybe that's what it was. All and right. I hope he went around and apologized to all the people who were left without electricity for about nine hours. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll give him a special award for getting thrown out of his airplane and landing in a river. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure if this is really an off-field landing of the week. Let's see. I think there's one more here. Where are we? Oh, yeah. Now, this is my favorite. All right. Uh, this is uh, David. Did you see this? Did were you there? This is a no, vi- but the, the guy that flew it's a friend of mine. Yeah. So this is a, a, a promotional video from Cessna, uh, where uh, on the occasion of a a, a fundraising golf tournament uh, in Wichita. Uh, Cessna, uh, let's see now, uh, Wichita Aero Club's charity golf tournament. Um, they uh, landed a Cessna Skycatcher on uh, the 18th fairway. And uh, it's just kind of a cool little piece of video. And uh, I, I have to tell you that it's not clear when you first start watching the video whether this was intentional or not, but it was intentional. And so they uh, they flew it in and landed it on the fairway and uh, taxied back to the crowd and gave the crowd a chance to come up and examine the airplane for a while. And uh, 
and then after after visiting for a while, he he mounted back up and uh, and and took off and. Uh, it, so it just goes to show you, you can use the 18th fairway uh, for for a runway. <laughs> who, who, who was, excuse me, who was the pilot? David, who was this? Kirby Ortega. It was, okay. Oh, okay. He's, okay. Uh, Kirby's a, a long, long-time Cessna employee. Kirby was my uh, designated uh, examiner for my private. Oh, really? Uh, uh, yeah, and Kirby was the Cessna pilot with whom I shared flying chores. Actually... I, when I did the flying, and Kirby, you know, just checked in things for me. Yeah. Uh, flying the Skycatcher from San Diego to Tampa a yeah. couple of years ago. Uh, and the airplane in the video uh, belongs to uh, the wife of the former head of Cessna. Uh, it's Rose Pelton's airplane. Oh, okay. Which was the very first one delivered. Oh, really? I, wait a minute! Didn't I thought the Kings got the first one? No, I guess maybe they got an early one or something like that. No, they 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 got the prototype to uh, develop a whole lot of their. Oh, uh, maybe that's what I'm thinking. Their of. syllabus around the the Skycatcher. That's what I'm thinking. That, of. that one was not that airplane's still in the Cessna fleet. Right. Yeah. So it won't be delivered because it's not actually compliant. Mm-hmm. Right. Speaking of former head of Cessna, Jack Pelton, apparently going to be the next uh, administrator of the FAA. No, probably not. <laughs> but uh, he won one of the popular. Everybody's doing this now. You know, everybody's running a poll. Who should be the next administrator? And uh, the latest pop, you know, favorite is apparently Jack Pelton from uh, formerly. Yeah, from he, what, what, he got about 48 percent of the, I guess, the, uh, the votes on that. Quite frankly, uh, I, I don't even know who, 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 what was the organization that held that poll because everybody's doing one. I didn't even look that closely. I don't remember. Yeah. I do know he just got appointed to the uh, just got named as a member of the uh, EAA board. Uh, but I don't know. I don't remember who did the uh, the poll. Yeah, it's it's uh, I you know I thought, was, I thought it was AOPA that did the poll. Could be because they're always doing silly or, polls. Yeah. They they do yeah. the silly poll of the week at, at on right. the AOPA uh, website. God bless AOPA. Lots of good things they do. Sometimes not so much. Um, so uh, so that's uh, that's the, the the final. That's the fourth uh, uh, off field landing of the week. Not a forced landing. Aww. So is that all? Is no, that did, all? we don't have another one. I don't know. We might. Do we? I don't know. Is there one I missed? I don't think so. I'm, I'm sure if we you know went out on the internets and looked. Uh, wait wait a week. One. There'll be another. Yeah, one. yeah there'll, there'll be more. Be, there'll be more. There'll be more. All right. What else? Let's see here. Uh, 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 you know, uh, you know what? I'm going to jump ahead here just because I don't want to run out of time. Um, I had a cool, cool winter carnival adventure over the weekend, and uh, I, I mentioned oh, yeah? this a week ago uh, that I was planning to go up to uh, Alton Bay, New Hampshire, on Lake Winnipesaukee, and uh, uh, visit the annual uh, winter carnival up there. And uh, and the the real thing that was attracting me was that uh, listener and friend Rick S, uh, aka Laminar, in the forums, was going to be flying his ski equipped cub up there and land on the ice and uh, um, and so I was going to meet up with him there and we were probably going to fly around the lake or something like that so I headed up on now and I was first of all it was interesting because we were trying to find a place where we could meet away from Alton Bay and and 
and that way I could arrive in with him in the plane at Alton Bay. And so we were we were scouting all around the southern New Hampshire area, trying to find some place where he could land a ski plane. And I'm telling you, there's no snow on the ground. There are no snow runways. We called all the obvious places. I, I scouted out a couple of lakes to see if we thought it'd be safe to land on the lake. You know, and and although the couple of places I looked at, it would have been safe to land on the lake, but you couldn't taxi to the edge because there's water all the way around the edge of these lakes. So I was pretty dubious that that they were going to be landing airplanes on Alton at the Alton Bay Ice Runway Ice Airport this uh, this time of year this year, but when the morning arrived, um, um, Rick called me or sent me a text and said he had checked and everything was go and and he was headed there and I'm pretty dubious but I'm thinking okay I'm going to go and see what's what. So uh, I got in my car and I headed north. Um, Alton Bay is not all that far away from here in Dover. It's about a 35, 40 minute drive. So I drove up the road, and as I'm getting into the air, and, and it's like there's no snow. It's a beautiful day. It's a little cold, all right? It's like about 30 degrees, but um, and the wind's blowing a little bit, but the sun, bright sun and blue sky, and uh, it's just beautiful out, all right? But I'm driving up the road, and there's no snow. And I was thinking maybe as I got further north, closer to Lake Winnipesaukee, there'd be more snow on the ground, but there just wasn't. All right? There's no snow. And, and as you... As you arrive in the Alton Bay area, so it's uh, it's this big, big valley that leads up to the beginning of the lake, and there's these marshes along the side of the road that are sort of an extension of Alton Bay, and and the marshes along the side of the road are all just open water, and I'm thinking, there's no way the ice is strong enough on Alton Bay to be landing airplanes, and no sooner did I think this, and now at this point I'm about maybe a half a mile away from the edge of the bay, no sooner do I think this than I look up in the sky and I see a champ turning base to final obviously lined up for the runway and i'm thinking on skis no he was on wheels He's um, on wheels okay on wheels this is not this was not rick this was just a champ this was just an airplane that happened to be landing as i or you know approaching as i as i was arriving and, and there is no runway without the alton bay ice runway uh there's no 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 there's not there's not a, there's right. no okay. ground airport at this location no um it's actually a seaplane base in the summertime it's chartered and official on the whole thing and in the summertime it's an official ice airport but so there was an airplane on final, and I'm thinking, okay, he can see, so he must know that it's okay. And uh, I was pretty astounded. And as I arrived, I turned the corner, and suddenly looking out onto the bay, there's airplanes parked out on the ice, and there's people having a good old time, and snowmobiles, I'm sorry, snow machines, and uh, ice fishing shacks, and uh, the whole, the whole, you know, the whole bit. And so I drove around the bend and, and kind of drove up the side of the bay a little ways to the place where we were parking, parked my car. And uh, and stepped out of my car to discover that it was in fact thirty degrees with uh, you know a ten knot wind. It was it was a little chilly. <laughs> it was a little chilly, you know. And uh, so I get on my car, I get all bundled up, you know, put on my gloves and my hat and the whole thing, and climb out of the car and uh, head over to the edge of the bay. Um, and and the first thing I see when I get to the edge of the bay is is there's open water around the edge. You know, it's like there's ice. There's about ten feet of open water, and then there's land. And I'm going. What the heck? You know, but there's air, I'm looking out there. There's half a dozen airplanes parked out on the ice, and there's people walking around and all kinds of activity. I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is just too weird. And so I walked a little bit further up to the shoreline, and there was a place where the ice came all the way to shore, and people were coming and going, and there were snow machines coming in and off the ice, and there was an occasional pickup truck coming in and out. And I'm thinking, okay, well, all right, there's plenty of people around to rescue me when I fall through, so I guess it'll be all right. And... Uh, <laughs> So I walked out onto the ice very, very gingerly, partly because it's slippery and partly because I'm like nervous I'm going to fall through the ice and I'm walking out towards these airplanes and I'm, you know, this is just odd, you know. So uh, 
I walked out and uh, I was looking at the airplanes. At that moment, there were about six airplanes on the on the ice, and uh, and I saw three in the pattern all at one moment. Um, and uh, wandered by a guy. So there was also an ice fishing tournament going on at the same time. And uh, and these guys are all drill, obviously drilling holes in the ice to put their little fishing rigs in. So I went up to one of them. I said, "How how thick's the ice?" And he goes, "He says, oh, it's like twelve or thirteen inches thick." All right. And I'm going, "Oh, okay. Well, if that's true. It's plenty thick enough. No problem." Yeah. Um, but so apparently, you know, it's like they had this weird. You know, there were places where I, I posted a picture on Twitter that showed that showed uh, uh they had a helicopter operator we were giving helicopter rides and it showed the helicopter um uh you know sitting on the ice and then between the and i was on shore and between me and the helicopter was this great big open circle of open water i mean it was just like you know water so it was really weird but apparently if you stayed 10 or 15 feet away from the open water the ice was plenty thick enough and it came to shore in enough places that people were coming and going and uh everybody was having a good old time you know and uh um so I was wandering around and uh, uh, waited till the appointed time. Um, uh, Laminar's got a, uh, uh, he's got the, the Nordo Cub that flies into our brunches down in, in Nashua from time to time. We've seen this airplane before and talked about it on the podcast. Um, it's, a, it's a Nordo, it's, it's got no radios, all right, but he does use his cell phone from the cockpit. And uh, so when he was about, he told me in advance, when he was about 10 minutes out, he was going to text me that he was 10 minutes out. So I got the text that said he was 10 minutes out. So I went and positioned myself up near the uh, approach and arrival end of the, of the runway um, and, and waited and got my camera out. And, and as he was arriving, well, actually, what happened was I figured I'm going to video this next airplane that comes in just for practice because he's got a few more minutes. He'll probably be the one after that or the one after that. So I'm practice videoing this one airplane that's approaching. And as it kind of gets on mid-final, I'm looking at it and I'm going, that airplane has no wheels. I bet that's him. And it turns out it was him. It was him and his cu- his oh, cub cool. with the skis on it. And uh, and he just came down, floated down, did a nice little touchdown and, and you know, you know, quote unquote, rolled out, you know, about, you know, not very far, you know, I don't know, five, five or six airplane lengths and uh, and uh, turned around and taxi back to where I was and, and came up and said hi. And uh, it, it was yeah, there's your theme song for this episode. What's that? slip sliding away that could be it that could be it because it was really interesting to watch these airplanes taxi on the ice um i mean not only is it ice and thus not very very uh, you know uh, not a lot not of traction, much traction there. not much yeah. traction but there was a pretty stiff wind blowing right down the down the bay i mean fortunately the wind was coming right down the runway so that was good from a landing standpoint but it was interesting to watch them make that 180 degree turn at the end to taxi back and they'd all be sliding sideways and you know as they'd come up into the ramp area they had some volunteers flagging airplanes into the quote-unquote ramp area and uh, when these airplanes were trying to come to a stop, they'd be skidding, you know, they'd skid, you know, 10 or 15 feet, sometimes sideways, you know, and uh, uh, it, it was... I, I, I- doubt any of our listeners would remember what used to be the Woodbridge, Virginia airport. I think it was Whiskey 60. No, it wasn't Whiskey 66. Something like that. Whiskey 9, maybe. Zero nine. But um, it's maybe a 3,000-foot-long private strip uh, for profit uh, uh, just outside the Washington Beltway. It closed, I'm guessing, early 90s, uh, maybe mid-80s. Uh, maybe mid '80s, I think. Actually, I'd flown out of there a lot. We some some airplanes I was involved with um, 
had uh, maintenance done there a lot, and we'd be ferrying them back and forth. And I remember taxiing out in a freshly annualed or, or inspected uh, warrior, I think it was. And, and uh, the taxiway there is supposedly, a, it's a parallel taxiway, but to get to it, you taxi from the ramp. And the taxi from the ramp and, and where you turn is downhill. So yeah, <laughs> and they didn't spend a whole lot of they didn't spend a whole lot of money on plowing the taxiway, and it had snowed a good bit. And I remember distinctly getting sideways with that warrior or sliding, you know, several feet sideways with it before I could give it a blast of power and some rudder and get it straight. But uh, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. So uh, we we landed at uh, Leesburg once. Uh, there had been a snow uh, snowstorm the day before. And they'd plowed the runway, and then the sun came in. When they plowed the runway, it still had about a half inch of compressed snow on it. And then the sun came out, warmed it up, and as the sun got low, about the time we're getting there, it froze again. How about that? Touched down in the Comanche uh, and started to have to fight with the rudder to maintain uh, lateral control uh, as we slowed down i never did touch the brakes uh, rolled forever and uh like damn to taxi straight we're pushing a lot of rudder into that puppy uh because of the, the crosswind there and it being slippery and at one point i was afraid it was going to just blow us into the ditch so we just kind of made the taxiway turn and a little tight and Fortunately, it was frozen enough that we didn't drop into the uh, drop off the edge of the taxiway. It was frozen. It was like a solid pavement. But skis, you were talking about uh, not a lot of directional control. Really good snow skis for airplanes have a pair of little runners. Yeah, and I don't know if this one did. Um, there, was, there was definitely a little slideways, you know, because there was no snow, so the ice was clear. There was nothing to give you sort of any any sort of grab on the ice except yeah, whatever. Yeah, the, the runners are supposed to help with that a little bit because they, they, they act a little bit like a skate blade. Right, right. And for all I know, there was such a thing under there. It was kind of interesting. Um, so there was no you know, way to tie down the airplane. Um, and a lot of people were using just ch wheel chocks uh, on their wheeled aircraft. Um, but that wouldn't work for the skis necessarily. What what Laminar used, interestingly, was two blocks of two-by-four wood. And uh, basically, he handed me these blocks of wood and said, here, I'm going to lift the wing, which will lift the ski up off the ice. I want you to slide the block of wood under the, the ski. <laughs> and, uh, and so we slid the block of wood under the ski, and suddenly it had a little bit, a little bit more friction there. And, uh, and that seemed to keep it from, from blowing away because it never did. So, uh, so he arrived, and uh, we went wandering around the ramp looking at airplanes for a little while. And uh, at this point, there, I think... At one point, we counted 17 airplanes on the ramp uh, there at uh, wow. there at Alton Bay Ice, Ice Airport. Um, uh, Laminar's airplane being the only cool. ski-equipped airplane there, which is he thought was pretty unusual. And apparently, we talked to one of the uh, flag guys, and he said in the past there there have been four, five, six ski planes, but this year his was the only one. Huh. Were you going to say something, Jeb? No, I was just going to. Uh, that's that's interesting. I, yeah. I wonder why that is. Well, we're pretty sure the reason is that. 
there's no snow snow runways anywhere. All right, they, yeah, that makes sense. And no one converted the skis. Nobody put skis on because there was nowhere to operate on. To, you know, nowhere to operate from. All right, if you were based on a lake, maybe you could. You know, but um, uh, uh, Laminar Rick's uh, airport up in uh, what's it called Post Mills, I believe, in in Vermont, just over the river from uh, the Lebanon area. Uh, it apparently just barely had enough snow on it for him to continue to be operating. Uh, oh. And so, so we looked at the airplanes, and then he turned to me and said, "You want to go flying?" All right, and I said, "Yeah, let's go flying." Wow. So, so we went you back. Said, yes, I'm so shocked. Yeah, so we went and uh, yeah, and uh, climbed into the uh, or I climbed into the back seat of the of the Cub, and uh, remember, this is a no electric system, so he's got to hand prop this airplane. So he's standing out uh, to the side of the airplane in front of the strut behind the prop, and and he's reaching in with his left hand to manipulate the the power, you know, the controls, and he's reaching out with his right hand to spin the prop, and uh, and you know took him four or five uh, uh, you know poles, if you will, to uh, to get the engine going, and. But here's the here's the thing, all right. So now he's standing, sort of one wheel, one foot on the ski and one foot on the ice, leaning against the front part, side of the strut. The engine is running. He's got to give it a little bit of gas to keep it from stalling. But you give it a little bit of gas, and suddenly the airplane starts to move forward because there are no brakes. All right, there's no tie down. There's no you know. So we uh, we enlisted a spectator who was watching us. We said, "Can you go and kind of stand in front of the uh, the elevator and just kind of lean against the the leading edge of the elevator and just kind of give it a little bit of pressure?" And that worked. That stopped the uh, airplane from moving. So got the airplane running. Uh, he kind of you know never letting go. All right, he uh, uh, kind of ducked underneath the strut and climbed into the airplane and then you know nodded to the to the uh, friendly volunteer to uh, the, to step away and uh, and we uh, we start you know taxiing out now he's kind of fiddling with the, I'd never been in a cub before um, I've seen I've seen them of course many times and the the door is in two parts uh, one is hinged at the top and one's hinged at the bottom and they come up and meet in the middle and there's a latch at the front and the back and so you know we're kind of moving across the ice kind of slowly and he's fiddling with the door trying to get it to close and and I would have helped but I didn't have any idea how it latched so I was just kind of trying to you know stay out of the way and uh, and he finally gets it latched and we're kind of rolling forward and we're almost to the beginning of the runway and then he kind of adds power and we kind of go rolling down the uh, runway and lift off this airplane lifts off you know especially with the wind like we had lifts off in like four or five lengths it's amazing how quickly this thing is in the air so we're lifting off and he glances to the do- to the right to look at the door and he goes oh crap he says the door is going to come open <laughs> i'm going oh really okay and uh, so we're climbing out and we're maybe i don't know you know a couple hundred feet off the ground and the door pops open all right and on the cub it means that the that the bottom half flops down all the way and the top half kind of lifts up to the underside of the wing now on a nice day this is cool all right because you got <laughs> you got primo visibility all right i mean this is just great all right on a nice day all right but when it's 30 degrees out to begin with all right and you got like whatever it is we're going maybe 80 knots or i don't know whatever give us a wind chill calculation yeah 30 man. degrees and 60 miles an hour it was a little chilly i have to tell you all right you know so now we're climbing out, all right? We're climbing out, and Rick's, like, leaning over trying to deal with the, the door, all right? And I'm sitting in behind him going, 
you shouldn't be doing this. Fly the airplane, you know, play it. You know, so I'm kind of guarding the stick. He hadn't asked me to, but I'm just kind of guarding the stick in case he kind of bumps it, you know. Um, and he's fiddling with the door and, you know, and he, he almost gets it latched and then it falls open again. And I go, hey, don't worry about the door. It's okay. We're fine. And he goes, all right, you know, he says, all right, well, I'm going to, I just want to get up, get to cruise and get, get, you know, trimmed out and then I can fix it. And I said, that's fine. Don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's okay. So we finished the climb out and we're climbing up over uh, the Lake Winnipesaukee area which is just beautiful. I mean, there's like, you know, for New England, they're, they're definitely mountains. They're the biggest mountains in, in New England up there in the Winnipesaukee area. Um, it's sort of the, the foothills of Mount Washington and all that. And uh, Lake Winnipesaukee, biggest lake in New Hampshire, you know, beautiful inlets and islands. And, you know, and then on this particular day, it's half frozen and half open water. And it's just the, the, the patterns on the ice are, are spectacular. And it's just, just a beautiful day. All right. So we get up to cruise. And, you know, and I say to him, hey, listen, I said, it's okay. You don't have to, you know, and I told him, I said, I said, listen, I'm a little concerned about you messing with the door and not flying the airplane. And he goes, no, no, it's fine. And in retrospect, it was fine. He totally knows how to fly this airplane. And, and, you know, he was okay. But I said, I said, listen, I'll guard the stick while you mess with the door. All right. And he says, he, and he goes, oh yeah, that's right. You could fly. Couldn't you? And I said, yeah. And so he says, okay. All right. So I said, I got the airplane. All right. So I was flying while he was fixing the door and he finally got the door latched and closing the door down definitely made a difference. It was nice. Suddenly it was, it was relatively comfortable. This thing actually has a heater of sorts. Um, you know, it wasn't toasty warm, but it wasn't uncomfortable at all. So we went cruising over Lake Winnipesaukee and, 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 uh, went flew, flew, we flew over Mitt Romney's house. I knew that would excite you. Apparently Mitt Romney has a, has a, uh, I don't know if it's his home home or if it's summer home, but he's at a home up there. Um, he, did, he didn't have a home in every state. Yeah. Well, he made uh, yeah, well, no, let's not go there. So, uh, so we flew out over, uh, I think it's called Wolfboro, which is one of the big towns on the other side of the lake. And we're just kind of puttering around, looking at stuff, you know. And then we kind of went to the east of Lake Winnipesaukee. There's all kinds of lakes up in that area. And, you know, not far, maybe a mile beyond Lake, the edge of Lake Winnipesaukee, we come to another lake. And we're looking down, and that's kind of this cool, long, much smaller, but a little thin lake. And we're looking at the ice, and he's kind of giving me a little lesson on how you can identify safe ice to land on. Because he apparently goes out, you know, ice fishing and, you know, lake hopping in the wintertime all the time, you know. So... So we're doing that, and then we kind of go beyond that little lake, and we come to another slightly larger lake, and uh, we're looking down, and I look down onto the right, and I look down onto the ice, and I say, look at that, that's cool. And what we saw down there were a bunch of ice boats, the sailboats, you know, the kind of um, uh, sailboats that are on on ice skates, if you will. I, I, I'm describing them badly, but uh, there were about six or seven of these racing ice boats down on the edge of the lake. And I said, look at that, that's kind of cool. And he goes... Yeah, it is cool. You want to go down and see them? And I said, sure. So we just kind of like, you know, descended through this 270, you know, uh, downwind base final, landed right there on the ice, taxied right up to not to the uh, to the, the ice boats, but near them. And uh, it was interesting because we were fascinated by the ice boats and all the ice boat people came out to be fascinated by the cub. They all thought that was kind of neat. And so we were kind of comparing, you know, equipment and uh, that sounds bad. You know what I mean, and uh, and uh, and walked over and looked at their uh, their sailboats, and they walked over and looked at the cub, and uh, once again we put the block of wood underneath the uh, underneath the ski so that it wouldn't blow away, and had a nice little visit down there talking with these folks and uh, uh, you know looking at the boats, and they all took off in their sailboats while we were there, so we went back and climbed into the uh, cub again and and fired up the engine and had to deal with the whole you know taxiing away while he's trying to climb in, but it worked out just fine. 
and uh, and took off from what was apparently Lake Wentworth, they told us, is what it's called. So we took off and, and kind of did a relatively low 180 turn and kind of came back and did a low pass over the uh, over the ice boats that were sailing around there and, and waved as we went. And, and so uh, we climbed out from Lake Wentworth and, and now returned back sort of along the same the same route, along the southern edge of, of Lake Winnipesaukee. And that first smaller lake that we saw, he said, you want to land there too? And I said, sure. And so we, he apparently liked, just likes landing on different lakes and just trying out this and that so we kind of did an approach to that one and came down and touched down and basically did a touch and go here and uh and he planned the uh the touch and go so that as we were kind of climbing away we passed by some ice fishermen that we had seen uh from the air and as we were flying by we waved and they waved and it was kind of this really cool little picturesque you know you know uh, uh cub moment all right as we were waving to the people on the ground and we climbed out of uh, this from the touch and go and and uh, flew back sort of out over the southern portion of Lake Winnipesaukee and did some sightseeing all the way to the far side and then flew back down the coastline until we got back into the Alton Bay area where we did a uh, sort of arrival. There was a lot of traffic, as you might imagine, in the Alton Bay Ice Airport area. So we had to kind of get a little more, more uh, uh, you know, structured, if you will, uh, a little more procedural in order to make our arrival to this uh, uncontrolled airport. And... Uh, so we overflew the airport and turned uh, left downwind and left base and came in and landed on the ice and, uh, you know, taxied back to our parking space. And it was the uh, it was quite an adventure. It was very, very cool. It was very, very cool. It's just a classic example of the things you can do with a personal airplane, especially one that's specially equipped for the for the conditions, you know, skis on a winter day. Um, very, very cool. I, thank you to uh, to uh, listener, Rick, listener and friend uh, Rick S., uh, a.k.a. Laminar, um, for a, a really fascinating afternoon. It was very, very cool. Have either of you guys ever done uh, a, a, a flying on off of skis? I've not done skis. I know, I know uh, Dave has. But so much about that is very much like uh, float plane flying. Yeah, I would imagine. Sure, yeah. You don't have, you don't have any brakes either. And, and a lot of times you're flying an older airplane that uh, I have seen pilots get out uh, of, the, the, uh, of a cup, uh, reach forward and fling the prop down. And then hop back in, and they're done. And you know, before they can get back into the cockpit, back into the cabin, the airplane's you know moving across the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you, you point it, you know, where there's open water, and, and you know what you're doing. And it's, I, I'm kind of surprised you can't do that with with uh, on skis. Maybe you can. I don't know. Um, it, it, in the case of the, at the ice airport, um, there was a lot of stuff going on there on the ice, so there was less room to kind of just you know wander around slowly um when we were over on the the uh the lake wentworth where we saw the uh, sailboats there was a lot more open area so it wasn't such a big deal i guess that we were kind of taxiing slowly while we were getting organized um but uh but it was a little bit more crowded over over at alton bay you know one thing i never got a chance to ask rick about um and jeb with your ski plane experience you might know the answer to this and dave with your Jeb with your float plane experience and Dave with your ski plane experience. Um, and I, I never noticed him do any sort of run up on any of these startups. I, do you just kind of trust to good maintenance here that, that everything's going to be fine? Or did, did he do a run up when I wasn't paying attention while we were rolling or any thoughts? You know, it's funny. I uh, had a, a letter to the editor in uh, March's uh, aviation safety, March's issue of aviation safety. 
and it was a woman asking a question, uh, basically the same um, uh, type of thing. She had experience with a particular pilot um, flying his airplane, and uh, after the first takeoff of the day, even though there would be multiple sh- uh, legs and multiple engine shutdowns, uh, only on the first leg of the day would he um, do a run-up and do a mag check and, and cycle the prop if, if there was one. Mm-hmm. And um, asked me what my, what my idea about all that was. And, and my thinking is you do a run-up every time the engine's been started. Well, that's the way I was always trained, and that's the way I do it. But, uh, you know, maybe, you know, if you know your airplane well enough, I, you know. He may have done a, a, a ski plane version of a run-up. And what's that? Right. And you didn't notice it. That's one where you flip between the mags but don't add a whole lot of power to right. it because you have right. no brakes. Yeah. I I have flown with experienced pilots who, for one reason or another, have done that sort of run up, um, you know, like while we were taxiing. Um, And uh, it was and they never did it like for the first flight of the day. You know, we had been flying already, so it seemed okay to me. Again, I was trained to do it every some each and every time. And so it always made me a little bit nervous, but I guess it's okay, You know, well, it's it's one of those things that you kind of uh, you you make allowances for the different type operation here. Same way with uh, with a, a float plane out in open water. Uh, it's one thing to do a run-up while you're there next to the pier, or next to the dock, and maybe has somebody holding a rope to, to keep you in place. Uh-huh. And even then, I'm not sure you'd want to put the kind of power into it that you do on a normal run-up on a land plane. Uh, but once you get out there, unless you're pointed in the direction you want to go and have clear run, then what I've seen done, what I was taught was uh, on skis and on, and on some float flying years ago, was you... you Get it pointed in the direction you want to go, bring the power up part of the way, do the left, take it back to both, do the right, take it back to both, and then keep adding power and do the takeoff. It's not really the kind of noticeable run it up, let right. it really run, and check them, and then check them, and then throttle back, and then get ready to take off. You just kind of incorporate it into that initial run. Yeah. Uh, other times you just do it as you're idling out, and you go, well, Yep, it still runs on that one. Yep, yep, it still runs on that one. Okay, we're good to go. Yeah. So, David, I, we lost hearing you there for a while. Did you get you caught the whole story though? The landing on the ice and the sailboats and the whole thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, any comments? Any any reaction or anything before we move on? Oh, well, that's just it, it's so much fun to do that kind of stuff. Uh, it, and it's a pity that there's not snow because it would open up so many other places yeah, that I would you imagine. could go and visit. Uh, it's fortunate that you got all that ice, but you were talking about going really slowly, and I was trying to inject one thought into there. Skis have no suspension. Mm-hmm. Okay, whatever bungee suspension you've got on a tailwheel airplane like that, uh, you may have noticed this. There's more bump comes through the butt of the pilot and the co-pilot hmm. when you don't have that rubber tire down there. Absorbing the initial part of any bumps and 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 uh, dips in the uh, surface, so not taxiing very fast, particularly on a hard surface like ice, is a little bit to protect the airframe and the landing gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, is you don't have the absorption on the ski that you do on a tire, and more of it's going to go through the uh, the bungee system and the hinges and. Uh, and then you do little silly things like if you get out of the airplane, shut the engine down, you come back. Before you st- try to start it, Armstrong or electric, you check and make sure that the skis are free. 
because they can kind of freeze themselves to the ice just sure. under their own weight. And once you get the engine started, it doesn't, they don't really want to move. So then you wind up wagging the rudder back and forth really hard trying to break the skis loose, which doesn't really hurt anything, but it's you know not something that you really want to do if you can keep from it. Yeah. I remember reading a story about a uh, ski-equipped uh, C-130 cargo plane that would fly supplies down to Antarctica in the wintertime. Well, anytime, I guess. Um, and uh, they had whole procedures around not being unmoving for very long. Uh, exactly for that reason, because the uh, the skis would freeze to the ground, and uh, and and from from the context of the story, um, there wasn't any way to break it off, break you know break it loose. I mean, it, it, yeah, that yeah. was a, that, that was a bad thing if the skis Them's froze. really big skis, yeah, carrying a re- a, a <laughs> lot of weight, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Anyways, uh, as I said before, and I can't say it enough, thank you to uh, Rick S. Uh, Laminar for uh, a great oh, afternoon like a of ball. flying. Just a ball. It was. It really was. So, uh, anyways, uh, believe it or not, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here. Uh, pick a story. What else do you want to talk about? We'll, we'll wrap this thing up. Anything on the list you don't want to skip? Well, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to give a quick tip of the wing. Yep. To the guy who decides to transport 40 pounds of pot. <laughs> yeah. In through some of the busiest airspace in the world and doesn't check the no tams. This is, uh, this is like, like, the, like that's not man, been you, done before. Yeah. Right? This is like the pilot's, the pilot's version of the Darwin Awards, I think. You know, it's kind of like. Well, yeah. you, you, you bring a whole new image to the picture of the dopey pilot. Yeah. I guess, you know, I, there are so many layers to this story. But, yeah, so this is the, I don't even know what kind of airplane it was. Some sort of small airplane stumbled into uh, President Obama's TFR. What was it, Jeb? It was a Cessna 182. Okay, 182. 182. And, uh, you know, we've heard this story before. Uh, he got intercepted and escorted by the fighters, and he landed. And, uh, and, oh, by the way, look what the cargo is. Oh, man. I mean, just... And, and 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 one other I'd like to throw into the wheels of the bus real quick and dirty. Uh, we, we'll put the link in here. But uh, those of you that are Sunday Funnies fans uh, that have been uh, sometimes challenged to understand the acts of one of our favorite pilot groups, yeah. <laughs> Scott, Ad- Scott Adams did a strip about us in Sunday's Funnies called Dilbert. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw the link to this. I didn't look at the comic here. I'm sorry. I'm opening up the comic here. Um, while I'm looking at the comic, Jeb, anything on the list you don't want to skip over? It looks, sounds like we're doing shout-outs, too. So uh, uh, whatever you got. Uh, we should note uh, um, Icon um, um, achievements this week. Yeah. What's the story on this? So the Icon got some sort of certification. Yeah, Icon, uh, and they got spin-resistant certification from the FAA, uh, which is to say the aircraft has met um, the FAA's definition through flight testing of um, being spin-resistant. Two important distinctions. Spin-resistant is not the same as spin-proof. Right. Right. And uh, I think even some spin-proof, so-called spin-proof airplanes can be stalled and spun. Not, which is to say that the Icon A5 certainly can be stalled and spun. Uh, it's just more difficult to do it. 
uh, I'd probably accomplish that with some some uh, uh, wing fences and limited elevator authority. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, will this make it? Will will this make uh, this particular model, which is an LSA, will it make it more popular because it has that built-in feature? Uh, probably also has a parachute somewhere. Uh, we'll see. It'll it'll be interesting to see this airplane come to market. Based on the level of interest, they should sell a bunch of them. But I just hope they have the financing and the and the resources to be manufacturing a bunch of them. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, speaking of my ski plane buddy, uh, Laminar, um, he actually commented on this in the forums, a fairly eloquent posting. He, he's a CFI and a sailplane pilot. He's a very accomplished pilot. And, uh, um, and, and he was extremely troubled by the notion of spin resistance. Right. And uh, um, he, he, a relatively brief, but I think very, very informative and, and somewhat eloquent um, you know, comment there about how this is just a foolish notion and you really shouldn't be thinking this way and uh, very much what you said Jeb um, take a look at that everybody so yeah yeah. what else anything else John Glenn 50 years ago that's right that's right you know that's pretty cool I, I mean I remember it's, watching it in the 6th grade baby I, yeah, did, I, know. I did too yeah. I did too well, um, I wasn't in, I wasn't in 6th grade you know <laughs> you know the whole thing is kind of the whole thing is bittersweet because I mean these were tremendous milestones in in you know call it aviation, you know, or aeronautics. Um, and it's great to, to remember these and memorialize them. But the fact that it's been, you know, approaching 50 years since we did any serious man, you know, moon flight, moon exploration, and that kind of stuff, that that's not something to be proud of. Um, but to remember the, the accomplishments these guys made and the risks they took, absolutely. You know, can talk about American heroes. Every flight was a test flight. Yeah. Every flight was an experimental test flight. You know, and and reading about this now, years and years and years later, um, it, it's somewhat astounding that more of those guys didn't die doing those things. Um, it, it's kind of astounding that, that that those programs were as successful as they were. Because like you said, I mean, you know... You know, the the unmanned flights just prior to the first manned flights were blowing up on a regular basis. It, it, it was just amazing, you know. Um, the courage that it took to sit in those things and the, the, uh, the, I don't know what you want to call it, the expertise of the folks who were building them who figured out the problems and made them, made them fly. Uh, with, very, slide, very with slide rules. Yeah, with slide rules, I know. Yeah, um, and, you know, there's, there's two great movies that are very fairly period correct. One is the right stuff, right. which is you know kind of epical about this, this particular topic. But Apollo 13 is also very good, and I would think Apollo 13 is a little bit more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the way it was done. Yeah, and you got you got guys yeah. sitting around in in, in starched white short sleeve shirts with pocket protectors and glasses. Yeah, and and they did this. Yeah. Pretty pretty amazing. Um, yeah, well, it, yeah, they remarkable stuff. And uh, you know, we didn't lose anybody in space until Challenger. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. That so, was twenty six twenty six years on. Yeah. So congratulations to all those folks. Uh, right now, we're celebrating the uh, the John Glenn flight fiftieth, um, but obviously, we're going to begin celebrating them all over the next well, you know, it, for, eight or nine. For years. those of you not old enough to remember, John Glenn's was America's first actual orbital flights right and uh he was supposed to do seven orbits because he was the friendship seven uh but some issues arose and they cut it short and didn't really know if he was going to survive coming down Mm. yeah 
Yeah. yeah. They, they had a, a heat shield uh, warning um, leading them to conclude that the heat shield possibly had become uh, unattached or, or would uh, soon fail once upon reentry. Right. Yeah. Crazy. So yeah, they, they, they got an indication of it. The Mercury capsule. It had these. They had an anyway. They had this retro uh, rocket pack uh, mounted, still strapped to um, the bottom side of the of the capsule. Oh, that's right. Each, I remember this. Shielded. Yeah, go ahead. And they had him instead of jettisoning that rocket. I mean, the retro pack. Uh, they had him keep it on the on the craft right. and uh, descended with that. You know, if there had if there was a problem with the heat shield, doing that you know helped uh, resolve the issue. I think it was a bad warning light. I think that's been since proven once they inspected the capsule. Mm-hmm. It, that's what it worked out to be. They had an indication that the, the deployment bag had activated. And the deployment bag was underneath the between the heat shield and the capsule. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to cushion the splash into the ocean. So if the if the deployment bag had deployed, uh, the heat shield would have had to have been gone. Uh, so, but, but that that pack that you're talking about stayed there. They calculated it would stay there long enough to keep the heat shield there. And the funny thing was that it burned off in about one third the time that they expected, yeah. and the heat shield still stayed there. Yeah. Uh, it just shows what a really dynamic on the edge uh, program all of that stuff was uh that's why every flight was a test flight hey listen time to stick a fork in this one i think absolutely jeb burnside is a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor serving as the editor-in-chief of aviation safety magazine jeb what have you been working on anything new we can take a look at uh not really i've been spending most of my time spinning my wheels trying to line up some projects and um um it's interesting. Um, it's it's a lot more time consuming and uh, um, I don't know um, more drama uh, involved than, than needs to be. But I'm getting there. Well, in the meantime, where can we find you on the internet? In the on the internet, um, aviationsafetymagazine.com is a pretty good pointer. jeburnside.com, uh, aea.net. I pop up there on occasion as well as uh, avweb.com. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? What can we look at? Well, uh, here in the next few days, uh, EAA members should start getting their March sport aviation. And uh, if they take a look in the far back, there'll be a one-page photo essay on uh, pilot caves that they run pretty regularly that I had a hand in shooting and writing and delivering. And I always love uh, any opportunity to do uh, do a little work for our friends up in Oshkosh. And this one came my way a, a few weeks ago. So that should be in print here next week. Excellent. And in general, where can we find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, net, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, there are actually a couple of other places, but they don't put my name on the story, so it wouldn't. Keyword search wouldn't do any good. Sir. Just they—they they don't pay me to be known. Yeah. And I'm Jack. I, I, and yeah. it's not that they're ashamed of me. They don't—they don't name any of us that do this work for them. I see. I see. Um, and I'm and, Jack. And, and thank oh, okay. you, Scott Adams, man. Thank you, Scott Adams. 
All right. One, two, three. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Please check out my latest Kindle ebook, Around the Field, Volume 1, The Stories of the People, Places, and Planes of the Oshkosh Fly-In. Uh, you can read it on your Kindle device and with the Kindle Reader software on your iPad, your laptop, or desktop computer. You can learn about that and um, other uh, uh, future Kindle ebook things for me at uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. And in general, you can find me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks, as always, to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes and also for some new stuff that he's about to take on. Um, I, I gave him plenty of opportunities to uh, withdraw his generous offer, but it's too late. He's going to help us out with some other things. Ah, thanks to Mike Morgan and to Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. I'm out of here, man. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.